The Scotiabank Healthcare Plus Physician Banking Program was co-designed with MD Financial Management for Canada's physicians by combining MD's 50-year history of working exclusively with physician households and Scotiabank's expertise in banking, we're able to provide specialized advice and unique financial solutions tailored to your needs at every stage of your career. We're better together and more committed than ever to Canada's physicians. Find out more about how we can help you and visit www.md.ca slash healthcare plus. To shingles, age isn't just a number. Do you have patients 50 or older? They're at higher risk of getting shingles. Don't wait. Talk about Shingrix with your patients over 50 today. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca slash shingrix slash pm for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. COVID-19 is the biggest pandemic on Earth since the age of the Internet, smartphones, and social media. This intersection has created an epidemic of misinformation that is spreading faster than we've seen before. It's making it difficult for both doctors and patients. We might think it's an information technology problem, but a historical perspective suggests this is an overly simplistic way of labeling the problem. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Nancy Toms, Distinguished Professor of History at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. Dr. Toms is well known for her extensive work at the intersection of expert and popular understandings of disease. She's written a fascinating article unpacking the modern infodemic by approaching it with a historical lens. Her article is published in CMAJ. I've reached her in Stony Brook. Welcome, Nancy. Oh, thanks for having me here. It's a beautiful day on Long Island. So could you tell us a bit about your work and your area of study, which, as I know, and I think our readers should know, is, is huge. It spans everything from infectious diseases to mental illness to marketing of, of disease. So this moment in time really has, has me thinking about my work in relation to uh, the different phases over time, uh, particularly a, a book I wrote in 1998 called The Gospel of Germs that was about the public health efforts to make people aware of and frightened of uh, the power of the invisible microorganism. It's a uh, fascinating historical subject that turns out to be eerily useful in 2020 as we combat the COVID pandemic. The basics of social distancing that we're using in this flattening the curve moment are the same as uh, were developed uh, a century ago. So it's a good example of how history continues to uh, be useful in understanding our present moment. When I was working on the gospel of germs, I was fascinated by that intersect you mentioned between experts and the public. I've always been interested in media and how media works to spread uh, scientific information. And that's the kind of background for what got me interested in this concept of an infodemic. The term infodemic combines information and pandemic. 
Uh, and it's a term that describes the overwhelming amount of information we have access to. But the word was first used during the SARS epidemic. Can you tell me a bit about how the word infodemic was used back then? So the usefulness of the term for me is that it really does target the internet and after. If you talk to any historian who studied pandemics in the past, what we're seeing now, the conspiracy theories, the calling out of specific groups to be harassed, or even the attempt to make a quick buck out of people's fears, these are ancient phenomena. Uh, you can see them in the medieval bubonic plague. You can see them in 19th century uh, epidemics. What is really, I think, captured by that word infodemic is um, the concept of information technology and how it has speeded up processes that uh, 100 years ago, same things might have happened, but they would have happened slower and they wouldn't have reached so many people so fast. Certainly misinformation and fake news. I'm not sure when that term first came out, fake news. But fake news exists in the media and on social media, especially surrounded by this and infused by the current political climate. But as you describe in your article, the rise of misinformation during epidemics has, has a strong resonance to the past. And you just mentioned medieval times, bubonic plague, uh, can you tell us a little bit more uh, in detail about how that information or misinformation moved around back then? So I think one of the fundamental continuities that we struggle with as historians is that because people didn't have the internet uh, doesn't mean that they didn't have ways to communicate if you look at the bubonic plague in, in the 14th century, oral communication, people talk to each other. Of course, they still do that. Um, there are uh, far fewer print avenues simply because paper is more expensive. People's ability to read is, is less widely disseminated. Um, so ideas moved around more through oral transmission, through people talking to each other, rumors spreading when uh, folks are down at the end of the street gossiping over their you know, morning uh, cleaning out the sewer or whatever. Uh, so that there was that kind of, of connection um, and spreading of ideas and information. It was just a lot um, more diffuse. And so the big... I think the direction of change, we go from the 14th century state of the 19th century, it's when you begin to get print media involved in this. You have newspapers reporting. You have uh, more health information that gets put into paper form, like a broadside posted during the cholera epidemic in uh, 19th century New York, for example. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's circulating, but now we have more paper. And I think we have a different conception of expertise by the time we get to the 19th century, um, a sharpening of sense that there is this professional elite that um, is generating new knowledge and sharing that knowledge. So that's kind of the you know, scientific, uh, modern scientific medicine in a nutshell is, is it changes uh, a lot quicker. And that interface between here are experts trying to figure out what the problem is and then share that information with the public to help them 
not die, uh, to help them evade the disease. I remember this, this brings me back to your book, Gospel of Germs. I think there was quite, you did quite a bit of um, searching into the cholera epidemic, as, as you mentioned. And if you bring this concept of certainty, because I think that's a theme in your, in your CMAJ article, and a theme as well as how do experts handle that uncertainty as opposed to, say, the way, the way knowledge was presented to the public, if we, can ha- if we can say there is such a thing as a single public, but if there is, then how does that come out in newspapers as opposed to what was going on behind closed doors in medical schools and among experts? That uh, scientific churn where you have different physicians from different professional backgrounds trying to figure out what causes cholera. They don't agree. And that lack of agreement certainly comes across in terms of medical writings. Um, How much of that gets picked up and then amplified in the popular press? It's it's less. Um, There's a difference in what was considered newsworthy um, until the late 19th, early 20th century, that the notion of what was the news, say, in 1832, is it's, it's news about what's going on in the business world, what's going on in the political parties. You have a lot less space in, in the modern media for um, all the, the kind of more personal, social, or even public health aspects of, of life. So one factor that changes from, say, the early 19th century to the late 19th century, uh, when the gospel of germs really gets rolling, is, is a different conception of what is newsworthy and the degree to which newspapers cover public health events and what is their coverage and and really even into the 20th century the coverage is more about here's what's in the paper here's what's happening and we are going to reproduce the latest advice from your local public health department about how to cope with problem um, x y and z there's not a huge attempt to try to explain the basics of what's going on to the public in the midst of of a crisis. There is an attempt to help people understand, but it's much more diffuse. It's more going to be in school training, what children are being taught about how to how to take care of themselves, a lot of uh, health handbooks, I mean, lots and lots of how to stay healthy by keeping your home germ-free. There's a lot of that kind of literature, but it's, again, it's um, not as broadly disseminated. I mean, we use the word mass media. Uh, it's kind of problematic term in a lot of ways, but it does indicate a shift in the 20th century of where you have uh, a much broader reach of, say, newspapers than are there in, in the 1870s. And if we fast forward to the early 20th century, the greater interest of the media in covering scientific discussions and educating people about those discussions, that increases dramatically over the course of, of the 20th century. I would say there's, um, there's a lot more control that the 
least the American medical profession had over what went into newspapers and magazines from about World War I through maybe the 1960s, so that, that there was more professional control over what got out there. And I think partly what we're living with through now is that those controls have been shredded. I mean, they started shredding in, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, but one of the problems we face today is that there is no control over what gets out there. Um, and there are now attempts to try to rein in what's being shared. Um, on social media, but only after a lot of resistance on the part of those media platforms. They didn't want to police the content. And that's part of what we're living with now is struggling with, with the, the free speech elements and not wanting to tell people what they can say or think. We're reluctant to do that. Um, and yet uh, a sense that this circulation has amped up so much and the there's no controlling force anymore that material that is just clearly false, totally unscientific. I mean, maybe you can find one renegade scientist or uh, physician to say, yes, this is true. This, what I would consider fake news is true. Uh, but where's the ability to hush that person up? There isn't. So can I ask you, um, you've studied and, and been able to trace this relationship between experts and popular knowledge over centuries. And so are you seeing then a, a profound shift in the role of experts and particularly medical experts in society and in, in the flow of information? Um, I wanted to sort of touch on this question of experts or the changing role of experts in society. That's a, a, a really key issue and one that we have to think of both continuity and change in, in this current moment. And that's kind of standard historian uh, position. When I see what's going on now, um, I can trace the roots of that loss of control over what gets into the media well back before 2020 or 2003 when the term infodemic was was first put out there. Um, I, I see a major uh, shift in the reporting uh, going back to the 1960s and, and 1970s and it, it's part of a, a larger shift in thinking about the democratization of knowledge in general and medical knowledge and healthcare. In, in particular. So we now believe in patient-centered medicine. Um, we believe in activated patients or patients who take charge of their health and their medical treatment. Well, that, that implies a, a collaboration with the expert, that uh, a sharing of knowledge and understanding of, of what's happening, uh, securing the patient's willingness to uh, abide by the treatment and, and to cooperate um, with the physician. So that, I mean, that's just a cornerstone of late um, 20th century healthcare thinking. That's a very hard category, but let's say nations like the United States that are affluent um, have uh, relatively high rates of, of literacy 
um, et cetera. And I'd say it's also that idea of educating patients was really critical in the ability to expand the um, assertiveness of medical treatment. You have to get informed consent before you do surgery, give somebody chemotherapy, um, et cetera. So there's that assumption that, that information needs to change hands, but one of the most problematic areas of post-World War II biomedicine is that communication process. Um, what's, you know, sometimes we call it health communication, science communication. Whoa, that, that has been one of the most contested areas. And I'm sad to say it also has relatively little standing in, say, an academic medical center. How many people are actually concerned about health communication? They're usually at the fringes of importance. And yet that ability to communicate what you know as a re either from the bedside or uh, from the laboratory, bench to bedside, if, if you can't communicate the information, share the information, but also put it into a larger framework, that, that's the information versus knowledge, to, to kind of skillfully parse the information, you can end up with all kinds of, of uh, tensions. And in fact, we do. Well, I mean, that, that kind of, brings us to one of the points that you were talking about, this distinguishing between interpretation and knowledge of facts or data. So can you kind of help for listeners to parse out what exactly you mean by knowledge? So I think the default option in modern biomedicine is to dump the data, dump the information um, in statistical forms, maybe, you know, somewhat curated, but basically to make this vast array of statistics and results, outcomes um, available, and then expect a patient to be able to make sense of those. Now, I, again, I'm, um, I'm not a physician, but I have lots of friends who are, in, in fact, that leap from here's the data to if I were you, what I would do with that information is, is huge. And so that's the piece where the knowledge and experience uh, comes in. Um, I know one of the aspects of the internet that many physicians resent the most is the person who Googles their condition and then comes in with lots of ideas about what's wrong with them and what should be done with them. Um, and uh, you know, I can imagine that's really annoying. If, if you spent years in medical school understanding a problem to have some, somebody think, well, they can spend an hour on the internet and come up with the same you know, wisdom no. Um, on the other hand, science is very complicated. There's disagreements. And some of what those lay people going out and looking carefully at the scientific evidence about a particular problem, they sometimes see things that um, they're in fact uh, bring back to their physicians that is... Um, useful to know. And I'll just give one example of, of the growing awareness that many physicians did not know the symptoms of heart disease in women. If women activists had not spent time 
doing their homework, that issue might not have, have gotten the needed attention it did. So there's this balance. I, I think that kind of generalizing that all, all patient input is irrational or unuseful. You know, clearly we don't want to go there. We also don't want to go to the extreme of saying someone who's read about the pandemic is someone that, sh that you as a physician have to listen to. But trying to find that kind of uh, middle ground uh, is very difficult. Uh, sort of when, when, is, um, when is an informed patient someone worth listening to. So that, that was a huge issue starting in the 1970s and up until 2020. Now, try to layer on top of that, you have a new viral disease. The scientists themselves have to figure this out. It's new. They don't know everything right off the bat. They, they can't. So that kind of slow process of we, we need some time to figure it out. What is it? Uh, what are its symptoms? How do they affect different people differently? What old treatments can we recycle? How can we get new vaccines? That's a lot of very complicated stuff that I think then very quickly to a degree that I, I don't know that we've seen in, in the modern internet age got kind of blopped out um, in, into the public sphere, not just in mainstream, the sort of traditional uh, news media, but then onto the social media platforms. It's just a really uh, complex and hard to control. So if, if you already have confusion about how much information patients can usefully turn use and what is the the relationship between information and interpretation or knowledge, already had that problem, put this on top of it, and it's no wonder that we're struggling. As you're talking, I'm thinking from my epidemiological training, uh, you could understand this as sort of a, as almost like a selection bias and a personal bias. If you're looking for a particular thing, you'll look until you find it in this ocean of information and then flip that around and, and it's look at the medical profession as a whole. And, and I think that, I mean, this is the Canadian Medical Association Journal where most of our, our listeners are physicians. So what can the medical profession do to combat this at the individual level to combat COVID misinformation? As I argue in the article, I think there is a real service that physicians can play at, in this current moment, even though it may seem almost hopeless to try to combat this on a person-by-person -person level, I would say no, that, that in fact having that access to your patients, your family members, to be able to uh, present a rational, moderate view of what's going on is enormously important. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to write that article was to encourage your, your readers to um, see that as important and to uh, put them you know, in, a, in a very simple way um, to, to include in the footnotes some of the resources. And, and I mean, they are, they are considerable and they're growing every day of um, curators of COVID 
knowledge that are trying to put it into usable form. Um, so you yourself don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can send people to trusted uh, sites. Um, I think using um, the, the, the trust and the knowledge that you have of, of your patients to target the message, to try to nip some, if it's possible, to nip some of the craziness uh, in the bud, I, I think would be, uh, again, I'm concerned that probably when people who are deeply into conspiracy theories go to see their doctor, they may not share freely that they're taking their cues from QAnon. But I'm not sure that that, that level of delusion you, you can combat. But the, the kind of more uh, muddled and confused, uh, yes, there's an opportunity there. So let me play a devil's advocate then and say, well, what if a physician is thinking it's actually not their job and that they think, well, let's just leave it to the politicians or the IT experts uh, to combat misinformation. What do you say to that? Well, first I'd say I entirely understand that impulse. This seems like such a horrible mess. You have enough trouble. You know, you can't go and solve the the IT problems of the world. You certainly uh, trying to uh, heal the current political partisan disaster. That's too much to ask of anyone. On the other hand, I'll play devil's advocate. I think there's a long tradition. Uh, at least in the U.S. medical profession, of wanting not to be political, um, to trying to stay out of uh, partisan politics, especially at the individual level. But I think sometimes the moment may come in a crisis where accepting that the, there is an important political role that the profession could play I wouldn't say that to individual physicians, but I'd say in terms of your medical societies, even the editorial board, to be thinking about what responsibility does the medical profession have at this present moment to join in the effort to pressure the big social media platforms to take down the really, really dangerous stuff. That to me is a would be a good thing um, for the medical profession to do, to join in that. And I'm seeing things happen that I never thought would happen in terms of breaking through that distaste for getting political or partisan. I mean, the New England Journal of Medicine editorial is just mind-blowing. But, you know, this is all hands on deck. This is a crisis of unprecedented proportions. So I think maybe getting more assertive in terms of, again, not trying to close down free speech, but looking at the, the, fi- the, the dangerous words, the shouting fire in a, in, a, in a movie theater, that might be worth thinking about as a professional strategy in, in the next year. One of the lessons I am taking away in the big picture from this COVID pandemic is very much what, uh, what I think we all knew ahead of time, and that is that uh, pandemics expose all the weaknesses 
in in a, in a society and its culture, and we are getting really a up close and personal sense of of the failings um, about what do we do about it. I. I'm, I'm totally in favor of vaccines and finding a new vaccine, but I think sometimes the default option is to try to find a easy techno solution. Just go find the new vaccine and this, all, all these problems will go away. They won't. Why history is useful in the middle of a pandemic is that it helps us focus on the big picture, on the continuity and, and the changes. Every epidemic that I've ever studied has thrown this spotlight on whatever it is that the dominant culture is ignoring. And we are certainly getting that uh, reawakening, again, uh, uh, searchlight on areas of neglect and areas of inequality that have to be addressed if, if we are to avoid this disaster with the next pandemic. That can feel really daunting to take on, but it's really essential to do it. And in just to try to end on a more optimistic note, we actually have a lot of understanding of what those problems are. What we have lacked is the political momentum and the the will to act on that knowledge. So maybe in this moment, that political will will appear. Uh, I can only hope. Um, I go to bed at night praying that, that we're going to have a real awakening out of this that will lead to changes in, in the future. That's uh, certainly a lot to think about. Thank you, Nancy. This has been a great conversation. Oh, and thank you for having me. I've uh, enjoyed it as well. I've been speaking with Professor Nancy Toms. To read her article, visit cmha.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>